I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, happy Sunday, everybody. I am Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined here on I-94 by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jim. Today, we are going to be speaking with the author of My Midnight Years, Surviving John Burge's Police Torture Ring and Death Row. We are joined, I believe, from Philadelphia today by Ronald Kitchen. Ronald, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you being here. This is a fascinating new book, and it's extremely timely. It's out from Chicago Review Press. Um, If you're not familiar with the John Burge case, John Burge was a Chicago detective. He recently passed away. He was uh, implicated and served uh, time, actually, for torturing suspects and coercing forced confessions. Well, I think think the time he served was for perjury. It was for Mm -hmm. perjury. It was for lying to uh, investigators about what happened. But Mr. Kitchen, who has written this book, was a victim of John one of the most famous victims, in fact, and he survived years on death row, recently out of prison, uh, was released. And we're very pleased to have him because obviously uh, this is a, a riveting topic right now in Chicago with the consent decree that's coming down from the police department that is supposed to take over the city, obviously the Quam McDonald killing, and the discussions of institutional racism that have affected our city. So, Ronald, I just wanted to start off. Could you give us a quick introduction uh, to yourself and to your life? Because you spent, obviously, a great deal of time here in Chicago. And, of course, you grew up on the south side where we're based. Yeah. Uh, as you know, like you said earlier, I was uh, convicted in 1990 for five murders, me and another guy named Marvin Reed. Um, I, I lived in Chicago uh, for the first 20-something years of my life. And then from that, you know, the rest was in the penitentiary. So, um, you know, the, the book tells it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was picked up for auto theft mm-hmm. in 1988. From auto theft, I went to five murders. Mm-hmm. I was uh, tortured for like over 17 hours by Michael Keel, John Burns, uh, Smith, and another detective named Dowling. And uh, convicted in 1990 for the murders, even though you know I had records and stuff to show that I was tortured horse into making a confession but you know we're dealing with the Chicago system you know um, those guys take care of themselves the state attorney take care of themselves the judges take care of the state attorney so it's like a no win win for us mm-hmm. and it took us uh, myself and Marvin Reed took us 21 years for people to listen and for us to be free Ronald I just want to say good morning and I enjoyed your book I'm also I'm also a kitchen. My name's Kitchen Jeremy Kitchen, so we share a last name. It's very rare for me. <laughs> yeah. But um, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you came up in the in the Taylor homes, uh, and they're they're long gone now. The Daily tore them down, and uh, I believe it was the early two thousands. Oh seven was the last one. Okay, so oh seven, and. You know, the, the, the Robert Taylor homes have a mythology to them, um, and in your book it was home. And can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were a kid coming up in the Taylors? Well, actually, I was, I was actually born in the project. I was born into the apartment that we stayed in. Uh, I only lived there from 19, from, I was born in 66, so I only lived there until like 60, 67. Oh, okay. So I, I, I didn't... I didn't I didn't live in the project. You know, I was born there. I was raised in the project and nothing like that. But I had family members that still lived in the project. But uh, my grandmother and my mom, they took us out. I was out of there in in, in 1967. So I I really don't know too much about living in the project. I know of the project. I know of the Taylor Homes, the Ida B. Wells, uh, and uh, I guess uh, Stateway Garden. I know I know a lot about them, but I never lived in in those buildings myself. Good morning, Ronald. This is Mike. Welcome to the show. Good uh, um, have you been following any any of the news in Chicago 
lately with the consent decree and and uh, the Van Dyke case lately? I had I had seen something on the news about the Van Dyke case that he got convicted of second degree murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually haven't been following it because when 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 you see a police killing, they always try to justify it. They, the first thing they do, they do the criminology stuff which is they go check on and they go do background on the person who was actually killed. Mm-hmm. They always try to spread dirt on a victim. Sure. And the police always try to be the one that, I'm not the victim, I was just doing my job. But it's, when you look at that video and you see how that police jumped out the car, all the rest of the police was standing by, by their car, jumped out the car, and he marched to the boy, shooting the boy, and he still said the boy launched at him and all this. I have always said it went from torturing people behind closed doors to holding court in the, in the streets now. And the first thing they say is, you know, when it comes down to them killing another black man, it's the first thing they say is, well, I fear for my life. Mm-hmm. Even if they go into the wrong house, first thing they holler about, I fear for my life. If, if I hear somebody at my door and they not announce themselves at the police, and I come downstairs with a baseball bat because I hear somebody coming in, and you just up and shoot because you still had a weapon, and you never made it known who you were. Right. And then you put on top of it, well, I fear for my life. Well, you was at the wrong house. Well, the the reason I bring that case up in particular, Ronald, is because there there's some there's some parallels um, with that case and and yours. Uh, one of them being that it, it went to the highest levels of of local government. There was there was knowledge of that video, allegedly, uh, among the mayor. Um, and it was suppressed for a year. Uh, likewise, likewise with your case, uh, it's, right. it was uh, alleged that Mayor Daly knew of, of what was going on within the police department, and, and nothing was done in, until many, many years later. Um, and I also there, there's there's quite a bit of activism going around going on in the city right now between Black Lives Matter. There's uh, the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression pushing for change in legislation and, and, and control of the, the police department. Um, and you were involved with a lot of activism in, in prison and and uh, outreach about um, abolishing the death penalty. So I, I just wanted to know if it was it was hard for you to follow emotionally, um, just geographically because you're in, you're in Philadelphia now and, uh, and and what your feelings about it are if you're if you're uh, keeping in touch with any of the people here. Well I guess it's, it's both, uh, it's emotionally and geographically, as far as me being in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I have people that, that still tells me, uh, keep me up, uh, posted on a lot of things. And um, like you say, Mayor Daly knew exactly what was going on at the police station. Uh, I remember back sometime like in, I think it was like 1995 when the uh, assistant attorney got on the news and stayed out of her mouth that we knew that we had rogue cops, but what can we do about them? If you know the cops are rogue cops, if you know the cops are com- uh, making people confess the crimes they didn't do, which you all still prosecute them and persecute them, so uh, you have no more become a criminal yourself just like you have the mean, uh, uh, mean me and made me a criminal when you know I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And as for Mayor Romney, he, he sat on that tape for a year because, like any other thing, they hope it's going to go away. Well, there was an election coming up, too. That's the main reason right. he sat on it. And, you know, they're trying to hide it. Right? Yes, yeah, which is disgusting. Um, let's talk about your mom. She was a big uh, yeah. big part of your release and, and an activist, and she stood behind you all the way. I. I I was actually, you know, I'm not a sentimental person, but I was very touched by your mother's um, participation in your case. Can you tell us, you know, what she did for you? And, um, you know, your mom, to me, is like the ultimate activist. I mean, she she stood behind you through thick and thin and, you know, and brought upon change and, and, you know, was instrumental in helping getting you released along with, I believe it was Northwestern, correct? Yes. But let, can you talk to us a little bit about your mom? I was very impressed with her when I was reading the book. My, my, I tell you, my mother was, was, was my number one soldier because at Nam time she asked me, did you do this? My mother knew me, she knew a child. 
you know, you know, a lot of people say, a, a lot of moms say, well, I know my child. My mom knew me, and she knew that was not part of my makeup. And and by doing it, her belief showed that through her work as being an activist, uh, uh, activist into that struggle. When when she came, she was she was like many other people. Uh, 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 not uh, uh, up with the campaign in the death penalty, the coordination for the death penalty. She she didn't know none of these organizations mm-hmm. until she, until her son me got caught up in a system that was crooked. So when it comes down to talking about my mom, there's nothing bad that I can say about my mom because she, I tell people she sacrificed herself for my freedom. Because when I came home, she had dementia. She didn't even know who I was. So, you know, it's like uh, the fight for her never ended until she passed away. So we talk, when you talk about strength, that's what that's what my strength came from because if she come and see me on death row, uh, I had to be strong for her as well as she had to be strong for me. And like I said, her work showed that what she believed in. She went through the police torture. I mean, it was times that she used to come on, when I was on death row, when we on death row, that they done do bricks to her car. The police done wrote crazy, crazy stuff. They come back on flat. They done spray painted her car. They, they, they did everything they possibly could to persuade her or to discourage her from uh, doing what she believed in. And that belief carried on when I went to the Illinois Supreme Court, when I was went back into Judge Benavenga, who denied me my post-conviction when I was in, in front of Stuart Palmer, that, who gave us everything, bless his heart. She was there when Governor Ryan did what he did. So she was there through the whole process until she got sick. And and and, 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 and the fight continued. When she fell off at, I picked up at. Yeah. We want to play a selection, actually, from your book right now, Ronald. This is uh, the, the day, actually, that you were picked up by police. And, of course, our readings, once again, we want to thank the International Anthem Recording Company. Today it's uh, Tamika Reed and, and Micaiah McRaven. But we're going to hear a, a reading from My Midnight Years again. This is a book written by Ronald Kitchen. It's out now from Chicago Review Press. We'll be back in just about three minutes. When I say my regular hustle, what that meant was seeing girls and selling cocaine. Dealing drugs was the path I took to support my family. I was not a kingpin or anything. Most of my business was local. But I had graduated from selling on the streets to the next level in the industry. Customers would come up to a couple of dope houses I rented and buy $10 and $20 bags from my employees there. I was rarely even present when these transactions happened. This lessened the risk. It made what I was doing seem almost like a real business. Maybe that was why so many people I knew had gone into narcotics and made a lifestyle out of it. They joined one of Chicago's prominent gangs, the Stones, Vice Lords, Latin Kings, or Disciples, and turned cocaine into a career. That wasn't going to be me. I never affiliated with a gang. For me, it was get in and get out. I had friends and family on both sides of the gang wars, though, and since I had cousins belonging to all of the rival crews, everyone tended to leave me alone. When you're a teenager and you're getting this money, you feel untouchable feel like they can't mess with me. In fact, I used to always just say that. I had never been locked up. I had never even seen the inside of a police station. Then I turned 21 and stuff got hectic real quick. It got really real. In the 1980s, everybody was coming up dead somewhere. If it wasn't in a garbage can, it was in the river. If it wasn't in the river, it was in a car. And every one of them that you heard about coming up dead was a dope dealer. I was getting antsy. Police had busted into my house in June and discovered 700 grams of cocaine. That was troubling, and I knew I was probably looking at several years behind bars. But it wasn't the cops who scared me most. Dudes in the neighborhood knew I had money on me, and that played heck on my mind. My nerves were gone. I was taking all sorts of precautions. I never let Ronnie Jr. or his mom ride in the car with me, just in case someone tried to shoot me down. I had been robbed at gunpoint in a darkened hallway, and that made me paranoid. I didn't feel safe in my own house. Now, if I got home and saw that the rooms were dark, I would call for my car phone and have someone turn on the lights before I ventured inside. 
I was telling myself constantly that it was time to call it quits and get out of the dope game. I had one son and a second on the way. I had bought Ronnie Jr. a bike with training wheels. I wanted to be there to teach him how to ride it around the block. I knew I'd probably be away for a little while on that cocaine bus, but because of that I was trying to get things in order. I was trying to get it so my family would be alright while I was away. I was trying to live. And on August 25, I was finally ready to make the change. That afternoon, my mom and I had a serious sit-down. I told her, I'm through with this drug stuff. I had a little more product to sell, about half a kilo's worth. I was going to get rid of my stash and be done with it. That was the plan I had been thinking about all morning. This is why I thought this one particular day was going to be a milestone in my life. And that right there was a reading again from My Midnight Years by Ronald Kitchen. I once again just want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, the International Anthem Recording Company. And make a note, uh, we don't censor on this show, but for unfortunate reasons due to the FCC, there's some language in this book we cannot reproduce. want to make sure that you folks know that some of the words we use we just had to replace because we're not allowed to say them on the air. Ronald, that, uh, that passage was from the beginning of the book. And, and towards the end, you uh, after your release, you're... You're talking about um, a kind of argument people make against you, this sort of first cause argument where they say, yeah, it, it might have been wrong for you to have been tortured. It might have been wrong that you were on death row. It might have been wrong that you were in prison for 21 years wrongfully and had those years taken away. But you shouldn't have been selling drugs in the first place. What, what do you say to those people? Well, I say this to them. When you discipline a child, you don't discipline a child for something that he didn't do. Do it. You discipline him for something that he did do. I have, I have never ever denied my drug involvement. Never ever. And I have never, I have never denied if someone did something to me, male wise. You know, I have to defend myself. So if. If, if you're going to come at me, you come at me for something that I have done. Don't come at me for something that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit up there and, and tell a lie on a person when I know that this, that the lie that I done told on this person can cause him, you know, to be killed, uh, to be hurt, or to be anything. So if, if you're going to come and you're going to attack me, attack me for something that I have done. Yeah. I have let it be known that I sold drugs. I sold drugs for a living. I, I never denied that. I never denied that. And it, it should be said in the book, Ronald does um, take accountability for that. Uh, you write about how in, in prison you reflect on the fact that uh, that your activity did damage to the community and that you were you were grateful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, it, and it, I remember I had went back to the county jail in 2001, I went back to the Fort Rick. And when they had me in the bullpen, I'm sitting in the bullpen, and I'm looking at all these oh, young, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, all these young dudes coming in, and I'm seeing all these young females coming in. And I said, to, I had said to myself, I'm like, man, I might not have not been out there to see how they've been doing it, but I had some talent and had had look. So I I have faced my demons and I say, listen, I had I, I have helped destroy a whole generation. I had I had my hand in that. You're you're talking about seeing kids go through withdrawals in, in the bullpen? Withdrawals, yeah. yeah. Vomiting mm-hmm. and crapping on a cell mm-hmm. on dope sick. I had a hand into that. And I have I have never denied that. Right. So if 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 I'm gonna be charged or came at come at me for something that you know I have done. Don't tell me and don't say that somebody pointed you out of stealing a car, which I never stole a car. I had no reason to ever steal a car. Right. It was a beat cop who knew you, right? It was a beat cop that knew me and he knew I don't steal cars. He knew exactly what I was into. Mm -hmm. And when and, and when all of a sudden Darwin pulled up on me and put that gun in my stomach and told me to get into the car mm-hmm. for auto theft. And I hollered back and told my mother, my grandmother, my mother's sister, and my kid's mom at that time, they said, I, I done sold the car. And everyone started laughing because they, that's not what I do. 
One of the things. Sorry, Ronald. Go ahead. And I and I get to the police station. The 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 concept is not the concept no more. I'm getting my brains beat in because I'm still I'm still on the thing that they say I stole the car. So when they come in and beat me up, beat stop beating me down and ask me who I'm talking to, I said I talked to a whole lot of people. I wasn't aware. I um on page one thirty five in your book that the Chicago Reader had posted a article as early as 1990 called House oh, of Screams yeah. Yeah. Uh, regarding your uh, regarding the cover-up of the torture scandal with the detectives. And then there was another, um, it says, mounting evidence and connections to the highest reaches of power did little to spur change. And then there was another article that said, Town Without Pity. And it yeah. says, why aren't we doing anything about it? And that's when, and, and, do you think those articles were responsible for helping... Um, getting the people to take interest in your case to help get you off of death row? It, 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 it could have been, but I think the people that got involved in my case as far as um, uh, Thomas Garrity, Caroline Frazier, uh, uh, Bacon McKenzie. Cunningham. Uh, these, these, are, uh, these are law firms. Mm-hmm. You know, with Northwestern, Tom Garrity, Caroline Frazier got into it. When, when Dick Cunningham... Uh, became that that attorney that everybody should have been. I think everybody needed him before he passed away because he was a stronghold and and uh, uh, and getting Northwestern uh, uh, Tom Garrity to pick the case up to be second seat. Um, so that article, listen, we we talking about a man that was doing stuff since the seventies. So this was this was nothing new. To the city of Chicago, but I think when the article came out and it started like putting stuff on there, but it still didn't do anything because you still have John Burge still being a police officer. Right. John Burge was still doing his thing. You still had Michael Kell doing his thing. You still had uh, uh, Smith and Dalvin doing their thing. So it really didn't make a difference. It got hot when uh, I believe when the campaign. The end of death penalty really got involved, and they was pushing it out there. They pushed it so hard that Governor Ryan picked it up, even though he even though he he made his a mistake of killing his person last person, Copelary, and 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 he found his conscience kicked in, and he found in his heart to do the right thing. And I believe mean, that's the only reason why he went to jail because he went against the grain. Ronald, I have to, I have to ask you. I'm familiar with, uh, with Coco Reyes's case, uh, the Chicago Ripper Crew. Um, you know, for those of the, our listeners that don't know, they were uh, doing satanic torture and murder of women that they kidnapped. And uh, you said that when you were on death row with him, he, he, I believe he was the last person executed in Illinois. Didn't it ever freak you out to know what his past was? I know people make you know, amends and, and change as they get older. But that, you know, that crew was, uh, I mean, they're not as known as some of the other serial killers in America, but they were some pretty nasty dudes. Uh, how, how was it to be in communication with someone that you know that did those terrible things? Well, one thing is it's, it's, it's kind of hard to say, to, 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 to try to judge a person. And I, I say that because, Remember, I was the innocent man put on death row. And for a person that who didn't know me, in my case, oh, he killed two women and three kids. Yeah. Man, he's a piece of work. So you took that you took that 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 right to me to judge anybody because now I'm an innocent man sitting there, so I can't determine who's innocent or guilty. Why? Mm-hmm. Because I'm an innocent man sitting on death row for a crime I didn't do. So, so now, when it comes down to trying to judge somebody, I can't because, why? Because I'm an innocent man. I wasn't there when Copelaris was, was if, when they said he was doing the, making, doing the killings or doing whatever. I, was, I wasn't there when none of the people was there. But when, when you put an innocent man on death row, so his ability to judge a person of his character of what he see or what somebody told him, you done took that away from him because why? 
you're innocent and you're going through the same thing he's going through. An innocent man shouldn't be, I shouldn't have never been on death row. Innocent man uh, shouldn't, shouldn't be there to determine who's guilty or who's not guilty because you don't. You done made you done made me into a monster, a monster that I have never been. You right. done made me into a murderer who would have never committed a murder on anybody, but you done put that label on me. So when people read my story before they knew me, oh, he's a he's a piece of work. He's a monster. He's that. So now you done put me into that stage. So I was friends with Copalera. I played Basketball with Cochlear, with so many other guys. Every guy that got uh, 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 executed, I was there except one, John Wayne Gessler. He was down in Menard. So when 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 you when you're there amongst them, that ability to to, to say, man, yeah, he innocent. That's 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 gone from me because I'm an innocent man and I shouldn't be in the same place as a guilty man trying to figure out who's guilty or who's innocent. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. You know, one of the things you ask yourself, and and I have a feeling this is going to be a long answer, so maybe we'll we'll save the answer for after the break. But one of the things you ask yourself when when you read this book is, how could this happen? You know, how how could this kind of weak evidence and torture be all, all be covered up? Um, and 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 you explain in in great detail. There are, there are a lot of reasons. Um, you know. They took great pains to, to use methods of torture that wouldn't be physically evident to the press. You were shuffled around uh, before your indictment um, so people couldn't take a look at you. The, the medical record, the, the medical attention you got was, wasn't really properly documented. Your legal defense was a little... Well, terrible. A, a, yeah, a lot weak <laughs> at times. It was terrible. But... I mean, w- one of the things that becomes evident is that this, this, a lot of people are involved in this. Yeah. Um, and I, w- I want to hear you talk about the point at which the levy broke when they couldn't hold it together, the secret together anymore, and maybe, you know, where the source was. Who, who found out that w- wasn't supposed to find out, or, you know, what. What was that breaking point? Yeah. We got it. We do have to go to a break. Let's get to that right after the break. Once again, you are listening to Lumpen Radio. This is WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. We're speaking with Ronald Kitchen. He's the author of My Midnight Years. We'll be back after these messages. For a few terrible hours after I received the sentence of death, I believed that only a matter of weeks stood between me and my demise. I was an emotional shell in a feeling of shock, and my mother was in an even worse state. The guards transferred me from my old cell to the lowest tier in Division I of the Cook County Jail. Once again, I was in the hole, which in this part of the institution was classified as F1, the location for Chicago's most serious high-risk offenders. I had a one-man cell in the oldest part of the building, and it was infested with rats. I mean, infested. You had to keep your food in the bed with you. Anyone who accidentally left their commissary on the floor would wake in the morning to find their bags torn to shreds by vermin. There was, however, one positive for me in this arrangement. Visitors to F1 were allowed to come right onto the deck where I was being held. My mother was down to see me on the day after my sentencing. She was in hysterics, and I wasn't much better. Upon seeing us, two men on the tier, Dino Titone and Murray Hooper, came up to their bars and schooled us in the reality of Illinois' execution process. Don't worry, they said. He's going to be all right. I had appeals coming, they explained. Years and years of appeals. I had my direct appeal, then a post-conviction petition, and then I'd file for a writ of habeas corpus at the federal level. If the feds denied that motion, then it would be it for me. But that was 20 years down the line. It wasn't much comfort, but... At that point of desperation, this news was as welcome as anything we could have heard. The cloud of death hanging over us cleared up just a bit. It was not a deep relief, and it didn't last. The fact that I was about to go on death row, just knowing that this was what was in store for me, made it impossible to feel any lasting sense of calm. I had too many hours alone to think. Life was flashing before my eyes. Everything I had ever done, everything I wished I had done differently. I agonized about my life without my family, not seeing my two sons or my mother and grandmother, 
were both suffering from health issues and needed me more than ever. And the same old burning questions were constantly in my mind. How did I get caught up in this crowd? Why did they choose me out of all the other black men from the South Side? Who was behind it? Why? At the same time, I had nothing but my thoughts. I had no trial transcripts, legal books, or court records to pour over. My lawyer, of course, had done nothing to assist me with the appeals process. But I did have Dino and Murray. They weren't jailhouse lawyers, but they were death row inmates. Both men were in Cook County lockup at the time for appeals hearings, and they helped me get my mind right for what lay ahead, recommending a rigorous course of study. If you can't read, they told me, learn to read. If you can't write, learn to write. If you don't know anything about the law, get to know the law. I hardly needed their advice. My experience with the police, courts, and jails had already taught me to see the world differently than I had as a young man in the streets. Then, I had paid little attention to politics or civil rights. Martin Luther King Jr., Harold Washington, and the thousands of protesters and activists who had tried to integrate and reform Chicago's schools and neighborhoods. I understood those efforts were important to society, but somehow they had never seemed relevant to me personally. Now I knew differently. My situation made me feel, for the first time, that I was part of the larger narrative of black history. I started reading hungrily. I can't tell you how many books I read, consuming one after another. In particular, I remember reading about Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, and Jesse Jackson. Their stories and my story all became part of a larger truth. In a way, it was like reading the same book over and over again. Before my conviction, I'd held this naive belief that innocent people didn't get charged with things they didn't do. My own life had shown me the folly of this idea, and reading up on history made me realize that I was far from the first black man in America who'd had to learn this the hard way. And welcome back. You are listening to I-94 here on WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. You just heard an excerpt from My Midnight Years, Surviving John Burgess Police Torture Ring and Death Row, a new book written by Ronald Kitchen, out now from Lawrence Hill Books, which is an imprint of Chicago Review Press. And we want to thank our reader, of course, Shanna Van Volt, for those readings, Tamika Reed for playing the cello on that, and the International Anthem Recording Company. Before the break, uh, Mike Sack had asked a question of Ronald about when it became apparent that the cover-up surrounding his case uh, had to end. And I wanted to get back to that point because I think it's a, it's a very important one. Ronald, thank you again for joining us uh, today. Can you talk a little bit about when when that, uh, when that the levy broke? I think the levy broke when when uh, the judge that originally had my case, which was Vincent Vendabinga, had uh, retired. I think he retired and passed away from years ago. And they gave my case to... Uh, um, uh, this other judge, I just say his name, Stuart Palmer. Mm-hmm. They, gave it, they gave it to Stuart Palmer, and they came in, and they were talking about that. I had a conversation with the jailhouse student papers. They had 33 tapes of me talking to this guy, confessed to this guy that I had, had that I myself didn't do the killing, but I had the killing done. You know, they say this for years and years. They say they had mountains and mountains of evidence against me to prove my involvement in to the murder, which they never showed. All they, they went into the courtroom with a jailhouse student pigeon, which was really well, and uh, pictures of the dead body. That's what got me convicted. And the statement that they had forced in uh, the body. Mm-hmm. Other there was no evidence against me. None. So when they kept talking about these tapes in front of Stuart Palmer, Stuart Palmer told them to get the tape. Now, it took them from, I think, Stuart Palmer got in my case in 2000, 2001. It took them all the way to 2009 after um, the city of Chicago got the case. We had went to the attorney general's office. They the ones got involved in the case. And after uh, uh, Judge Beatles uh, gave up the special prosecutor stuff and took case from the state office, that's when the levy broke. Because all the stuff that they said he had against me, it, they could never produce it. Never. Well, one, of the, they said he had a, one of the reasons I asked, Ronald, is, 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 uh, is for young activists today, or activists in general today, I think there, there can be a lot of discouragement uh, about not being able to 
penetrate the, the, the walls of the system. You know, the power is set in its ways and there are many layers um, purposely put in between so th that people can't break through to make change. And, um, you know, time and time again in this book, you <laughs> tragedy strikes and you just keep going. You keep fighting. Um, what what can you say to people fighting for change who who aren't sure how it's going to come about or even where to look to in terms of the powers that be who can make that change? Well, my thing is to, to those who's out there fighting, no matter what's put in front of you, you got to kick it, you got to walk over or, or kick through. Because uh, they are fighting just as hard keep it a secret just as hard as you fight it to open it up and the more you fight the more that door is going to open up for you so i wouldn't i would never let what the power to be deter me from getting the truth out the truth might cost a lot but the truth no matter what the truth is the truth stays the same it's always the light that changes up and that was and and that is what gets people in trouble to constantly cover up the lie after lie after lie. The truth never changes. I don't care how many ways you tell it, you're going to still get the truth. And, and, and like I say, and that is really what happens to me. No matter how many lies they told, my truth stays the same. So, Ronald, I have uh, two questions. These are a little bit of a lighter note. One, uh, are you still roller skating? And yes. And two, uh, what's your life like now? Yeah, I still roller skate. I, I can't do what I used to do, but I still got I get out there on the floor, probably try to get on the skate like twice a month. Uh, and as far as uh, things that I'm doing, I, I you know I buy properties, uh, uh, rehab and rent them out. In Philadelphia, I got a little uh, rim and radio shop. We do uh, radios, tent windows, rims. We put uh, sounds in. That's, I do that out here because, you know, I'm a car enthusiast. I love cars. I always have loved cars. So I, I'd rather do something that I like than do something that I don't like. And that's what I like doing. I like like the renovation of homes and houses. Me and my wife just brought a, a nice big building on the east side of Chicago that we, we're doing right now. We're getting it renovated right now. So, um that's basically what I'm doing, and, and just enjoying life with my family. I got a, a seven-year-old now that uh, I, I put all my time into it because I was taken away from my other two kids. So uh, I'm trying to give her what I didn't have a chance to give them. I teach her how to drive. I teach her, you know, uh, I'll take her to school every morning, pick up. Teach her how to, uh, we, we, we talk about everything that we could talk about. She is my focus other than my family. So that's what I'm at. I'm on family values and, and just trying to live life to the best of my ability. And see, this is one of the things that we talk about, you know, on the show sometimes is, um, you know, here you are, someone that was a drug dealer, wrongly accused, put on death row, and now you're a successful businessman. And, and you know, if, maybe if you would have had some different opportunities coming up, you know, this could have all been avoided and you know this is one of the the, the crisis in chicago you know we have a great deal of inequality great deal of poverty people don't have any outlets and you know and, and here you are now a successful businessman you just you know take care of your family family values and you know, first of all i want to say that's awesome and i'm glad that you have a good life because uh you know your book your experience was was hellish and 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 difficult to read um, but also important, and, you know, I, I think this is a part of Chicago history that needs to be talked about because you're just a drop in the bucket. You know, we don't know how many people these guys railroaded, you know, that didn't have a successful outcome. And I, I just wanted to say that, you know, I'm happy for you that you, uh, you know, that you're a successful uh, businessman now and that you're able to spend time with your family. And um, I also, uh, you know, I, 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 I skateboard. I'm older and I, I can't do what i used to do but i try and get out too and uh for me it's very meditative and, I'm, and i hope that that uh you know that's something that's meditative for you and uh are you able to still shoot the duck 
No, I can't. I, 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 like I said, I can't. I can't do the things I used to do when I was in my teens, and I can't do that. But I, I'm still smooth with it. I'm still glad across the floor. I, I still have some, some of that still in me. You know, there's this. And it, and it is, and it, and it, and it, and it does. It really does uh, help me. It, it really does. It helps me because you, I have, I, I have uh, a little bit insomnia. Hmm. You know, I still things up when it hit me. I might be up for like two or three days at a time. Yikes! My, my mind is racing. That's what it was. That's how I was in jail because I have to come out and to make sure that I'm not in it, in that place. I have to come out and make sure that it's not a dream. I got to come outside. I got to come on my front. I got to do something to help me come back to help me calm me down. So skate is one of them. Just. Being able to get up out of my bed and walk out the door with another thing. Just to, just to talk to my wife or just even pick up a phone to call somebody. That's another thing that helped help me uh, bring back some type of stability and, 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 and get me back focused. Ronald, you, you talked about having met your wife before you were in prison and her, her contacting you after you got out. And it, it, there were... There was a little story I was kind of confused about it, her calling you at, at four in the morning when you first got out. No, no, it was uh, it was it was it was another girl named Tina. Oh, okay. You locked your doors. That that was 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 chasing me down. That had me scared. Okay. So if I was living with my auntie, my auntie Linda, on <laughs> on the on 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 Artesia. So I get this phone call like four in the morning, and she really hit me on the phone. Where you at? I tell her I'm asleep. You know, he done spooked me. I'm coming over there. I'm like, no, you're not. And the thing that I forgot that she didn't know why I stayed. She had the number, so I jump up. I go downstairs, and my auntie got these these this big high gate, and she keeps it locked. So I go outside, I make sure the gate locked, I make sure the door is locked. So she done scared me. So the <laughs> next day, I, I come, I'm coming from the eye doctor. My wife called me. Right, right. And she say, this Tina. I'm like, this ain't no Tina. I said, you got 10 seconds, you know. <laughs> and then when, it, when, <laughs> when it dawned on me who it was, I'm like, oh, my God. I had to call it back. And I had to uh, explain to her the reason why. I said, you got 10 seconds to talk, so talk. Mm-hmm. So I thought she was this other crazy girl, Tina. That scared the life out of me. <laughs> yeah, and then you wanted to continue the conversation. She said, nope, 10 seconds are up. Yeah, Goodbye. Yeah, and then I was trying to talk. She said, get my 10 seconds, and she hung the phone up on me. So <laughs> I, I, I tell everybody that. You know, I told her, I, I, told, my, I told her back in, in the 80s when we were dating that she was going to be my wife. I, that's how I met her. I used to always call her, hey, wife, hey, well, mm-hmm. hey, wife. And she was always calling me, get away from me. Put you some type of creep or something. Why is she saying that? So I actually had to break it down. It, it took a couple of years to do it, but it did it. You know, my my perseverance broke through. Right. We, we, we you uh, you talk about the moment in prison where where you you just started nailing the books. Um, you know, obviously we love books on the show, and, and and all three of us love reading fiction. I want to know if you were there any novels you came across that that you you liked any fiction? Well, the, I think the the best the best fiction book that I took grasp to was Harry Potter. No kidding. I had every, I had every series. When I tell you, I was at Hogwarts. I was with Harry. I was with Simone. I was with all of them. I was with all of them. I did all the flying. I did all the tricks. I did. I was there. <laughs> That's great. I was I was part of characters in that book. Did you get them new? Did you have them new? I got in the brand new. Oh, wow. I got them brand new. Every copy. I got every copy brand new. Alice Kim made sure that she sent me every copy. When she brought her copy, my copy's in the mail right now. Oh, that's she right. Alice Kim. Would you would you tell us a little bit about her? She was an important person. Yes. Alice Kim. I met Alice Kim through my mom. Alice Kim was part of the campaign in the death penalty with Joan Parkinson, Noreen Martin, uh, Marley Martin and Noreen McNeely. She was with 
that group, but Stanley Howard's mom, Joanne Patterson, Aaron Patterson's mom. So she was with uh, a group, Frank Brown's mom. She was with a, a group of women that were powerhouses. And I tell you, they made the campaign. And Alice Kim was the director of the campaign in, in the death penalty. And when I met her, it was like uh, the doors had, had the doors had opened up because I had told her we, when I first talked to her, and the thing was, if you can't do what you say you're going to do, there's no need for us to even have a conversation. And she proved her work. Not just her, Marlene Martin proved her work, Joan Parkins proved her work, uh, Aaron Patterson's mom, Stanley Howard's mom, Frank Brown's mom. They were the powerhouse of the campaign in Denver. They made the campaign in Denver what they became and who they were. They represented a lot of people. And Alex Kim was a great part of that. And still is a great part of it. And for, for listeners who don't know, the men that Ronald just mentioned were part of the Death Row 10. That was the group of men on Death Row uh, who, who formed an activist group to, to, uh, to get the death penalty, um, a moratorium on the death penalty. And, and we got it. You did? We got it. Did. We got it. We got it through the activist work of Alice Kim Jones Park, Mark, of, of my mom. And from that, we pushed it to the lawyers, and the lawyers pushed it to the governor. And Governor Ryan, like I say, bless his heart. I wish I could go see him and even talk to him because he did something that was unheard of. He put a halt on execution and then he cleared their throat. No one has never done that. Never. It was an act of political courage. And speaking of which, we have been speaking with the author, Ronald Kitchen. He is the author of My Midnight Years, Surviving John Burgess, Police, Torture Ring, and Death Row. Uh, we're running out of time. We do want to leave you with one final excerpt from Ronald's book here. Again, that's from Chicago Review Press. I did want to close the show with one final question for you, Ronald. Obviously, John Burge recently passed away. I'm sure you heard that news. What was your? Did you have any feelings or emotions when you heard that news? No. Only thing I said was he got away. He got away. You know, when 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 we think about a person who does premeditated murder, I think him and the rest of his cronies was premeditated murder. If not murder. For them to no willingly put any innocent person in jail and then on top of it on death row, knowing they're gonna be executed for something they didn't do makes you a murderer too. Not just any murder, but you sat down and you thought about it and you potted it out and you act on it. So when he died, did I feel anything before his death? No. The first thing was, he got away. You know, and he did. Michael Kill died. He got away. So yeah. when you hear these things about these, these, these officers that who were still getting their pensions when they died, who was allowed to go home every night with their family and, and eat at their tables with their wives and stuff and not do a, a single day in jail other than John Burns for perjury, man, the show that the system is still covering up and it's still hiding and it's still protected. Well, we've been speaking today again with Ronald Kitchen. Ronald, thank you so much for spending time Thanks, with us today. Ronald. We really appreciate Thanks, your time. Thanks, Ronald. This is an important book. Again, it's My Midnight Years. It is out from Chicago Review Press. And we're going to leave you with one final excerpt from that. We'll be back next week, and we'll see you here again on I-94. I was determined to avoid trouble. For the first few days of freedom, I kept close to my auntie's house, never straying much further than her front porch or the backyard. Before I could truly feel independent, I had to get my documentation in order. I needed a driver's license, a social security card, and a birth certificate. The chance of getting questioned and harassed by the cops in Chicago, even while just walking on the sidewalk, was always high. The last thing I wanted was to go out for a stroll and find myself, without any identification, being questioned by a police officer. That would result in me sitting in a cell somewhere for a day or two until they could figure out who I was. I knew I couldn't have that. The thought of the police, let alone a jail cell, put me into a cold sweat. Once I felt the comfortable sensation of having a driver's license in my wallet again, I settled into a steady routine. In the mornings, I took long walks and jogs around the neighborhood. Things had changed. 
During the 1980s, before she lived here, my auntie's street would have been considered a no-blacks-allowed part of town. It had been all Mexicans back then. As it happened, her place was only six blocks south of the address on Campbell Avenue where the murders had taken place. It was surreal to run by the house. It was still standing. A new family had moved in and was living a normal life there. Riding through my old neighborhood for the first time gave me one of the biggest shocks of my life. In my youth, these streets had been filled with nice houses, lawns, and thriving businesses. I'd already seen some of that start to change before I went to jail, but now almost everything was abandoned. And it was hard not to take the changes personally. Sometimes it felt like the city had set out to erase my own life story. I drove around town to find old landmarks from my youth and discovered only empty spaces. The Robert Taylor homes, where I had been born, were gone. This had once been the largest public housing development in the world, but the last tower had been pulled down in 2007. I had always had mixed feelings about the place. I was born there, and then I had watched it fall into disrepair. Grateful to not have to live there, I still saw it as a place of refuge, a world where only black people lived. Other former residents clearly felt the same way. After the towers were destroyed, the families who had stayed there decided to hold an annual Robert Taylor Holmes picnic. Linda brought me to one of these affairs. When she told people who I was, literally hundreds of strangers came up to me to tell me they remembered seeing me as a little kid. That said it all about the Taylor homes. For all their issues, there was a real community there. The removal of that project was the most notable, but not the only example of loss. Each and every one of the other houses where I'd stayed on the south side, on Emerald, Union, Carpenter, and Aberdeen, had been bulldozed too. They were vacant lots now, covered in dirt and scraggly grass, and blocked off by chain-link fences. No one was left to take care of them the way my grandmother had always made sure we youngsters had done in the past. After a little while, I learned not to take this too personally. It wasn't about me. The same thing had happened to almost every black district, every impoverished area in Chicago. When my family and others like us had worked to integrate housing, the neighborhoods had vanished. White residents and the leaders of the city, families like the Burges and the Dailies, had literally preferred to destroy and abandon entire neighborhoods rather than to consider breaking down barriers of racial separation. I traveled through the streets and found gaping wounds. It was perfectly normal to encounter just one or two houses still standing on a whole block. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Ronald Kitchen, author of My Midnight Years, out now from Chicago Review Press. This episode originally aired on October 28, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.